Two and a Half Admins, episode 55. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your blog post plug is choosing the right ZFS pool layout. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into deciding how you're going to lay out your pool, and it's the main thing that you can't really change your mind about easily after. So knowing all your options before you get started leads to a much more successful pool. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So Jim, you have been setting up Wi-Fi bridging between buildings and writing about it. I get a lot of people asking, how do I get you know Wi-Fi from my house to the mother-in-law cottage in the backyard or the pool house or, you know, in more rural areas, the, the barn or, you know, the trailer over on that side. And um, it's kind of frustrating because when you start looking into point-to-point bridging, if all you really know is like, well, I know these are the terms and I need to get a box that says those things, uh, you know, they all talk about kilometers worth of distance and, you know, professional pole mounting and, you know, trimming any trees in the line of sight. And it's like, okay, I get that you need to do all those things if you actually do want to bridge 15 kilometers with this kit. But what can we accomplish if we do literally none of that? If we just plug it in, have it, you know, inside the living room, going out through a plate window on one side, going through a patch of woods to the barn on the other side with absolutely no effort for tight aiming, let alone tree trimming or anything else. And the answer is up to 80 meters, at least it works pretty well. You can get 100 megabits rock solid with really no experience or even steady hands required. I deliberately had my antennas aimed probably 15 or 20 degrees off from one another over 80 meters of distance, about 40 of which, uh, 30 or 40 of which is heavily wooded. And uh, yeah, 100 megabits. The limitation actually was not the Wi-Fi. It was the wired interface on the devices, which is only fast Ethernet, not gigabit. But 100 megabits, not bad wirelessly over a distance that's outside. Oh, no, it's not bad at all, especially when you realize that the entire kit, both sides of it, costs less than 100 bucks. Did you find much difference between the 2.4 and the 5 gigahertz versions? It's the same as just about anything else Wi-Fi. Like, if you're rural, you're going to think 2.4 is great. If you're in a dense urban environment, you're going to need the 5 for the exact same reasons. Because, you know, rural, you're going to be like, oh, greater range, greater penetration. This is way better. You know, when the foliage comes up on the trees in the summer, my signal quality doesn't drop with the 2.4, where the signal quality does drop a little bit, you know, with the 5, with conditions like that. But if you're in an urban environment, frequently 2.4 gigahertz is just a complete no-go all the time. You're surrounded by people with microwaves and, you know, with their own Wi-Fi that is usually tuned to blast to the max on 2.4. And, you know, you may be able to pick up 50 different SSIDs in your apartment or backyard if you're in a really dense environment. So I don't care what you do with point to point, you're going to get enough of that into your receiver on both sides that just like any other Wi-Fi device on 2.4, they just, they never have any airtime to talk with. So urban, you should hopefully need to penetrate fewer obstructions, which is a good thing because you will need that 5 and not the 2.4 to make sure that you have available airtime to work with. In your article, you talked about the speed being pretty solid. Well, very solid, in fact. But you didn't talk about the latency or the packet loss. Did you test that? With either kit in uh, March, before the foliage was mostly up in the grove in between the house and the barn, there's no packet loss with either of them. And, you know, it's a millisecond, maybe, for ping. Oh, right. Yeah, it's it's effectively nothing. Because the thing you have to remember is, even though this is Wi-Fi in the sense that it's the same protocol, and it's Wi-Fi in the sense that it's the same frequency ranges, 
directional point-to-point Wi-Fi with only two devices on it is not the same thing as omnidirectional Wi-Fi with five devices, you know, connected throughout a house Mm. to one central unit that has to be able to split time amongst all of them and deal with all of their individual problems. And maybe you can't get your packets yet because that other device is talking and you have to wait. Well, if you're doing this point-to-point link properly, the only two devices are going to be either side of your point-to-point link. So, under reasonably decent conditions at that point, there's not a whole lot of difference between that and a wired connection, other than the fact that it's half duplex, not full duplex. So, the device on the far side is not going to be able to talk while your device is talking, or vice versa. But other than that, they're the only things on the line. What about video calling, then? Works fine. It doesn't really make a difference, yeah. Wi-Fi mostly comes down to the concept of airtime, which is who can talk when, right? If you think of a room with, you know, six or eight people in it, all standing around kind of in a circle talking to each other, if more than one of them talks at once, then nobody hears anything. It's just, it just turns into gibberish. And the same thing happens in Wi-Fi where you have to take turns talking. And it means that if somebody's telling a story and shouting in the corner or whatever, nobody else can talk. Whereas when you just have these two endpoints and there's no one else on the line, it means that they basically get 100% of the airtime. And it, yeah, like Jim said, compared to running a 100 megabit Ethernet cable that same 80 meters, the only real difference was that it's half duplex because you can only do in one direction at a time. Yeah, and considerably cheaper. A hundred bucks for both ends of it. That's remarkable. Not even a hundred. <laughs> and you said there there is a... Wi-Fi 5 version with a gigabit interface? Yeah, uh, there is. I have not tested that one. Um, The unfortunate thing about that one is it's also a more unwieldy form factor. The ones that I tested were very simple little, uh, you know, long rectangular solids. The only thing on them is just a zip tie mounting brackets. And uh, you can zip tie them to something or you can just literally set them on their side on a shelf, which is what I did on one side. It's incredibly forgiving. Whereas the newer version from TP-Link, the CPE 710, which is what you're talking about, a Wi-Fi 5 with a a gigabit Ethernet interface, not 100 megabit. Unfortunately, it's like a satellite dish looking setup. So you need to be a lot more serious about how you mount it. You're probably not even going to be able to just set it on a table because even though the aiming probably still really doesn't have to be that precise, it's not going to stay where you set it because it's this big curved dish thing. and It's just going to roll over. I haven't done any of this stuff for years. Like I did one point to point installation like this. A friend of ours had paid for expensive microwave internet at their shop, a, a garage uh, to repair cars. And they didn't want to pay for it again for their house, which was like on the other side of the road and back away from the road. And so we just strung a point to point system up on the TV antennas they had, the to- old towers for the analog TV antenna, and zapped Wi-Fi from one to the other. Although, I think this was like B when that was relatively new. <laughs> it definitely wasn't anywhere near the speed you were talking or the, the quality, but some PoE injectors and run them up, uh, you know, this was outside instead of through a window and was a lot more work. And it sounds like with what they got now, you just zip tie it to a cat tree and put it in the window. Yeah, and honestly, zip tie is pretty much optional. The only reason really even zip tying to the cat tree was uh, I specifically wanted to set them up not only aimed not quite right at each other, but also out of phase. So the one zip tied to the cat tree was vertical and the one over on the bar side was the barn side was uh, sitting horizontally on a shelf because I really like my whole point was 
the product literature on these things always wants to talk about what an amazing distance you can bridge if you get everything absolutely perfect. And I'm like, screw that. There are literally millions of people out there who need to know, like, what can I do with this just doing it and making it work at this much smaller scale? And uh, the answer is yes. You know, it's a great product for that. It's not even best effort. Just, you know, if I just throw these up, is it going to work? And it sounds like it works very nicely. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some feedback then. Thomas writes, just wanted to follow up on episode 51 where you answered my question about using old drives. I've taken Joe's advice and I'm using them to learn about ZFS with possibly sketchy hardware. I have two drives in a toaster style external dock as a mirrored pool with some movies and TV shows. But don't worry, the files are also on two other drives in his media server. I'm really impressed with ZFS so far, loving snapshots and excited to keep playing around with it. I think we call that a success story, chaps. I think we do. The only thing I'll say at this point is be careful about those uh, toaster-style external docs. I have had a lot of problems with those. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not any really super interesting stories to tell, just, you know, dodgy external USB things that sometimes work and sometimes don't. Do they fry the drives or do they just stop working? I haven't had one destroy any equipment, but if it stops working in the middle of doing something critical with a file system on that drive you've got in it, then uh, it's still not a win. Yeah, but it sounds like uh, what Thomas is doing is not really uh, critical at all. So probably doesn't need to worry too much. Yeah, just, you know, if you can avoid using USB to connect hard drives, you should. If you're just playing around, it's fine. But, you know, I imagine it wouldn't be too difficult to get enough SATA ports to hook them up properly. Well, and I'll also say, you know, he says he's got backup. If he's got backup, he's got backup. It's fine. Yeah. It's just one of those things where if it's really going to cost you to have this thing suddenly be unavailable one day, then you might want to think about doing things somewhat differently. I really wanted to find one of those USB drive toasters that would work well for me because uh, there was a point at which it would have seemed ideal for doing, uh, you know, file system recovery work on my own. But I just never found one that was reliable enough to be worth dealing with. And then eventually I just started building even my workstations with hot swap bays. So I can just slap a drive directly into my workstation through the front without worrying about anything. And that removed my need for the USB toasters. But based on my experience with them trying to use them, you know, to access drives every once in a while, I would really be nervous about trying to use one for storage that I relied on to be up when I needed it. Yeah, I had kind of similar experiences. The USB drives were always just a little flaky. And every time there was a problem, you suspected it was that. And not being able to rule that out just constantly causing that niggle uh, or just like, this is supposed to be faster than that, right? Or, you know, anything like that. 
And then I had this um, Kulu Master case that had a hot swap bay for the two and a half inch like laptop drives built into the case. And I found myself using that occasionally to image hard drives out of laptops for people before they cleared it off. Or like uh, there was a program at the teacher's college where as part of the program, they got this laptop, but they had to wipe it before the end of, at the end of the semester, the IT department would wipe it for them and give them back as just a plain laptop without all the licensed software on it. But, you know, I imaged the, the hard drive for her first so that when she got the laptop back, it still had all the first files on it and so on. And being able to do that with a hot swap bay was just easier. And then finding myself doing the same thing with, you know, I bought one of those little um, adapter kits on Amazon that slides into a bunch of the five and a quarter inch bays and turns them into four hot swap, three and a half inch bays. And just having that hooked up to be able to slide hard drives in and out as I needed them just was so much easier, especially for like doing recovery and stuff like you were saying. Okay, James wrote to us, in episode 50, you had a question about Ubuntu Samba share slowness. I found that mounting any SMB share, Debian server running Samba, using the Ubuntu GUI, which uses Fuse in the background, I think, gives me really slow performance, 55 to 70 megabytes a second. If I add the share into FS tab using SIFs and use it, I get much better speeds and response when browsing the folders through the GUI. Hope that helps. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Nautilus has built-in functionality for doing a remote mount of Sampa shares, but that is absolutely correct that it, it runs in Fuse under the uh, the user who's running Nautilus's permissions. So whereas if you do a mount as root from the command line, uh, including in FS tab, then you're going to get the non-fuse version and it will be considerably more performant. Okay, Hans also wrote to us about Samba. I think you were somewhat unfair to Samba in episode 50. It is true that it is an old protocol that has undergone a lot of changes and stuff over the years, but in my company, we've used it for years and years with very little trouble. We use it because it's the universally adopted standard that all the different OSs can use. We have one big Linux-based Samba server that serves many Windows, Mac, and Linux clients, and we have no issues with it and no speed problems. With a gigabit network link, we get really good transfer speeds. My machine has up and download speeds at about 100 megabytes per second, which is the maximum possible. I should mention that I try to keep the configuration as close to the recommended settings as possible. Using SMB with a Windows machine as a server might be a different story. I can certainly see why you would think that we were dogging on Samba, but that wasn't really the intent. Samba's problems have very little to do with Samba and everything to do with Samba not owning the protocol. Microsoft owns the protocol and they make a lot of changes. And I've got a few clients that are using Samba servers as well. And, you know, yeah, they can also pull 110 megabytes a second, you know, over a gigabit link, assuming there's no storage bottleneck. But that doesn't change the fact that maintenance can be a pain on it, particularly, you know, when Microsoft changes what protocols are allowed to communicate with Windows boxes and, you know, your upstream provider of Samba has not done the same. And, you know, then you're, you're sitting iterating through different configuration options and restarting the service and hoping to finally find the one that works right. Yeah, there's definitely downsides to being in a situation where Microsoft dictates how this is going to work and you just have to play along and deal with it. Nobody's written a, a whole replacement protocol, and I don't know that it really makes sense because we're really after compatibility, and if you need something else, that's what NFS is supposed to be for. Or for simple file sharing, SFTP works wonders. And now every operating system I'm aware of, 
supports SFTP natively. Again, I use Sambi here over 10 gig. Like actually the, the machine I do my gaming and stuff on only has a small NVMe and then everything else lives on my NAS via Samba. And it works quite well. There's only a couple of applications that are, you know, specific games are like, no, I don't want to run off the network drive. <laughs> but most of them work just fine. Yeah, and I use Samba all the time, Linux to Linux, and get my full 50 to 60 megabytes per second to my SMR drives. <laughs> works perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I used to use it Linux to Linux as well, because it's just like, if there's going to be one Windows box in the house, then you might as well just put everything on Samba and, you know, call it a day. But once I started seeing breakages, like uh, my uh, Kodi machine stopped wanting to to read the Samba service on my workstation, you know, I thought it for about half an hour. And then when I discovered that Kodi would cheerfully just connect over SSHFS, I was like, well, <laughs> that's that then. And I stopped caring about Samba on that particular machine. In a business environment, you know, where I had a lot of people relying on it, I might use, in some cases, a service that's built on Samba. Uh, you know, I might deploy like a Zygmunaz or a TrueNAS or what have you. But usually I'm not going to do that either because it's after 2020. You know, everything's VMs these days. And if it's a business and there's a bunch of people depending on it, then you might as well just shell out a few hundred bucks and, you know, put a copy of Windows Server on there. You put the copy of Windows Server on there to feed, you know, all of your clients' Windows desktop machines. And there are definitely, <laughs> you know, I probably shouldn't say no interoperability problems because <laughs> Microsoft to Microsoft has been known to have its share of issues as well, but certainly fewer. And, you know, when you do have them, nobody's going to yell at you because you went and put this weird thing on the network. You know, it's going to be like, oh, well, Microsoft sucks then. I know we've talked about it before. If you need a domain controller... Samba can do that, but you're much, much better off going with Windows. For the file sharing, I've not had that many issues with Samba, but I've definitely heard of people having all kinds of strange things. The first thing I reach for is still Samba, but I I can't disagree with Jim's point that, you know, if you're building something where you're going to have to have a bunch of Windows infrastructure anyway, sometimes it can be better to just do it the way it was meant to be done. And a lot of it is just, you know, a paradigm shift on what you're used to as well. I don't know if I ever really would have started seriously using the Windows native SSH and SCP functions that showed up in Windows 10 a couple of years ago if Samba had not gotten hinky on my main workstation and I suddenly needed to copy all these files from, uh, you know, laptops that I was testing for Ars Technica, you know, off to my workstation to compile into charts and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And before Samba went all hinky, obviously I was just using, you know, a shared folder on my workstation. But when it did, and you know, things started getting weird with it, just out of like, I need to get this article out now one day, I was like, all right, well, I know Windows has SSH, let's see if it has SCP as well. And sure enough, it did, and it worked fine. And after I'd done that a couple of times, like, I don't really want the Samba back. I mean, if you're supporting Windows users who are used to, you know, that mode of doing things, it's one thing. But once I kind of realized, oh, I can just treat this like it's a real grown-up machine, I was happy. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person 
who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and we'll check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then, but first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. And if you or your company wants to get the word out about your product or service, get in touch with us about advertising. So Ian wrote to us, I set up Use Unbound on my Libra CMC router to block my child's YouTube access at certain times of day. But when the DNS block starts, the currently playing video will continue playing until the end. I assume this is a common issue with all DNS-based blocking, e.g. piehole, etc. What is a good way to deal with this issue? The good way to deal with that issue is to use a platform and or third-party software specifically designed to block things like YouTube for your child. Because technically speaking, it's an incredibly complex problem. YouTube.com can resolve to lots of different IP addresses, and they are not guaranteed to be the same for very long. So the technically proper way to do the blocking is to actually you know, have a firewall rule that you put in place when it's time for your child to stop watching YouTube that blocks their access. DNS just stops your ability to look up where YouTube.com points to, but A, it's usually quite easy to work around one way or another, and B, as you discovered, it's no good for time-based stuff. It's all right if you're just like, I don't want anybody to have access to this ever, but your DNS blocker is not going to, for one thing, it's not really going to affect how long the individual machines will cache that DNS. You know, if you've got a domain that has like a one-week TTL, well, (laughs) once the person that you want to have time-based access has resolved that domain once, they're going to be able to access it for an entire week until the TTL expires on that zone. Yeah, even if Unbound is clamping the TTL down to avoid that, most browsers will also do their own caching just like, I have the website open, there's no reason to go bug the operating system's DNS cache again. I already know what YouTube is, or you know, the way a lot of modern websites work is you're basically constantly connected and you're not actually completely disconnecting from the site once you're done loading, especially if you're playing back a video that's basically a stream. So yeah, the only way to do it would be basically to cut off the connection. And so you need something much more involved than just DNS filtering. And like you said, the fact that YouTube is made up of a lot of different IP addresses makes it a lot more complicated. I can understand not wanting to clamp off the internet entirely after a certain time, just killing off YouTube. But like Jim said, Especially if it's just DNS-based, there are quite a few ways around that. I remember there was a bunch of different sites you could use to still access YouTube when YouTube was blocked at your school or whatever. They just give you know a different DNS that actually resolves the same thing. I know I sound like a smug, childless person who sleeps till whenever they want here, but doesn't it come down to better parenting at the end of the day? Like, if your kid wants to watch YouTube, they're going to find a way to do it, whether that's with some GUI-based YouTube DL thing. Like, they're going to find a way. Past a certain age, sure, and that certain age is going to be different for different kids. And, yeah, a lot of it does just come down to, you know, different people have different parenting styles. The rules about Internet access are stricter in my house 
with me and my wife than they would have been if I'd, you know, somehow had them spring fully formed from my brow like Zeus. But it's not unreasonable either. And a lot of the time, it's not even necessarily so much about like, you know, oh, we need this technological measure to make this thing absolutely impossible to enforce our fashy household rules. It's more just it it helps, you know, like you don't want to have to be constantly wandering around the house, like looking for your kids to be on YouTube during this like four hour period that you want them to be doing something else. You know, whether it's playing outside or reading a book or whatever, you don't care. Just please get off YouTube for a while. If you're having to constantly like follow them around and look and yell at them yourself, that creates a lot more resentment than just, you know, oh, yeah, this is the time that YouTube doesn't work and I'll get up and go do something different. I remember in high school, the computers were on this side of the library and the librarian sat on that side. And every time she got up and walked over, lots of windows got closed before she got there. (laughs) Hit that spreadsheet (laughs) F key on Quake, right? Yeah. I don't know that we've got an answer that's going to make Ian happy because, you know, I heard, uh, I think, Libre CMC router. So we're, we're talking about somebody with some serious... You know, I want to be open source with this and it's just going to be too much work because it's not just setting up this one thing. It's constant maintenance. The rule set has to change, you know, as Google shifts IP addresses around between net blocks and, you know, yada, 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 yada. So basically that leaves you with needing to use a service provided by somebody that has the personnel power to keep up with that maintenance. And your best options for that right now are going to be Google has great built-in family controls on, uh, you know, Android devices and on Chromebooks. Better on the Android than the Chromebooks for now, but the Chromebooks are getting closer and closer. We use Google Family Link. The only drawback there is it only supports a family of up to five people, including the adults. No, I think it's six people, including adults. So if you have, you know, a fourth kid, That's it. (laughs) If you have like a grandma that needs to be on the same plan so that she can help, you know, manage the kids stuff, you know, then that can be an issue. You can hit that hard limit a lot quicker than you might think. And you can't just pay your way around it either. It's just a hard cutoff. That's all it does. Beyond the Google stuff, if you want to do something on, uh, you know, more of a whole network level, the problem gets considerably more difficult once you get off of the individual device and you say, well, I need to enforce this centrally at the network level. There is a pretty decent cheap option, but you're probably not going to like it. And that's by a Netgear router that has, uh, you know, Disney's Circle built in. I've tested Circle family filtering extensively, and it is by far the best thing I've seen out there, including enterprise web filtering stuff. Circle's better. There are also standalone Circle devices, but I very, very, very strongly recommend you don't buy one of those because they do incredibly stupid network stuff in order to avoid having two NICs instead of just one. The Circle standalone devices will cripple your freaking network. But the built-in to the, you know, Netgear default firmware is perfectly fine. It does not noticeably impact performance. It is incredibly granular. It can be configured per machine, assuming you can trust, you know, identifying machine by its MAC address and yada, yada, yada. Per hour, per classification of site, per individual site, it's it's really solid. You could... Block probably by the the AS number, basically the BGP group, which I think would let you identify all of YouTube at once, but it would end up blocking all of Google, which is probably not what you're after. And yeah, pinpointing is just going to be a very hard problem because Google changes their infrastructure all the time as it grows and adapts. You know, they have caching nodes local to you and what that one node does can change based on how busy things are. 
you know, that node was uh, Google's cache for jQuery one day. And, and when YouTube is busier, it becomes a YouTube node. And then suddenly that IP address, if you do block it, you know, what was YouTube yesterday is now something else or even is just shared and does YouTube and something else. And now you've blocked something that isn't just YouTube. Yeah, like Alan said, you actually can't find the the ASN for YouTube. You can find the ASN for Google and block the entire thing. And once you, you know, we're talking about YouTube specifically now, but you go to a different video provider and you discover that, you know, they're using, uh, you know, AWS buckets for their storage. Well, you can block all of Amazon Web Services by ASN. That's not going to leave you in a condition that you want to be. So ultimately, you need actual people who are maintaining this on a daily basis for a staggering number of sites, if you want more than just YouTube, but even just YouTube, it'd be a lot of work. You have to be messing with it constantly. Yeah. And then some things are going to end up being probably not that easy to do. Like uh, if you're trying to block, say, Discord, because it runs all in, I think it's Google Cloud. I forget which cloud provider they use, but they have no real infrastructure of their own. And because it's all elastic, it means that there's no specific Discord thing you can block. You basically have to block all of Google's cloud. And now you've blocked some other thing. And, you know, it's very easy to have a device that says, you know, these MAC addresses can't access the internet at all after 9 p.m. But it didn't sound like that's what you were after. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.